Section 7 of The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Crystal Gaddis. The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2, by Charles E. Flandrau. Section 7. A Frontier Story Which Contains a Robbery, Two Desertions, a Capture, and a Suicide. In 1856, I was United States Indian agent for the Sioux. My agencies were at Redwood, about 13 miles above Fort Ridgely, and Yellow Medicine, on a river of that name, emptying into the Minnesota about 50 miles above the fort. Under the treaties with these Indians, the government paid them large sums of money and great quantities of goods, semi-annually at the agencies. Up to a short time before the event which I am about to relate, these payments were made by the agent, but, for some reason best known to the government, the making of these payments was turned over to the superintendent of Indian affairs, having charge of the tribes. The manner of making these payments before the charge was this. I would receive from the superintendent at St. Paul the money in silver and gold, this being long before the days of greenbacks, amounting to a full wagon load, and take it up to the agencies, while the goods would be delivered by the contractors in steamboats, a census of the Indians would be taken, and the money and goods equally divided among them. After this duty was withdrawn from the agents and imposed upon the superintendents, of course all responsibility for the money and goods was shifted from the former and laid upon the latter, which was to me a great relief, as I had transported many wagon loads of specie from St. Paul to the agencies without guard and at great personal and financial risk. A payment was due early in July, 1857 and the superintendent had brought the money as far as Fort Ridgely. Arriving at that point, news came of much excitement among the Indians at the agencies, which was not at all unusual, as thousands of savage fellows used to come in from Missouri River country and make trouble for our tribes about payment time, and the superintendent decided it was prudent to leave the money at Fort Ridgely until matters quieted down. There was no vault or other safe place in which to deposit the money at the fort, so it was placed in a room occupied by the quartermaster's clerk, a Frenchman, an enlisted man, and he, with another soldier, a German, who was the post baker, were put in charge of it. This Frenchman had been selected from the ranks of Captain Sully's company and made quartermaster's clerk on account of his superior education, his excellent penmanship, and his good character. I always have thought he was some unfortunate young gentleman serving under an assumed name. The money was all in stout wooden mint boxes, holding each $1,000 in silver and gold about 25000 or more, there being usually one or two boxes of gold. The boxes were spread on the floor of the room and the men slept on them. The Constitutional Convention to frame the organic law for the proposed state of Minnesota had been called to convene in St. Paul on the 13th day of July, 1857. 
and the people of Minnesota Valley had done me the honor to elect me a member of it. I had delayed starting from St. Paul until a day or two before the meeting of the convention and had heard rumors that there would be trouble in organizing it. I felt very anxious to be there on opening day. The only mode of transportation except the river in those days was the little canvas-covered stages of Mrs. M. O. Walker and Company, which would hold four inside comfortably and six on a pinch. When the downstage reached Traverse des Sioux on the morning of the 11th of July, it was full. That is, there were five inside, three on the back seat and two on the front, and one man on the seat with the driver. I insisted strenuously on going, and I said I would ride in the boot rather than not go at all. My insistence, of course, having reference to my desire to be at the opening of the convention. I was admitted and took my place on the front seat, with my back to the driver and my knees interlocked with those of the passenger on the back seat who faced me. At this time I had heard nothing of what had happened at the fort. The fact was that the two men who had been placed in charge of the money had opened one of the boxes of gold, taken out a bag containing $5,000 in quarter eagles, and sealed it up again. When the superintendent sent down for his money and it was loaded into the wagon, the two soldiers immediately deserted, which, of course, excited the suspicions of the officers. A courier was at once dispatched to the agency to see if the money was all right, and the theft was soon discovered. The superintendent, who was then Major Cullen, had handbills struck off, giving the description of the deserters and offering $600 for their capture and the return of the money. Couriers were dispatched in all directions to effect their arrest, and one of the handbills reached Henderson, which was the county seat of Sibley County, some 20 miles down the river from the point at which I took the stage. A deputy sheriff of that county had started out to hunt the thieves and secure the reward, carrying one of the handbills with him, and had proceeded up the river as far as Lasseur, about halfway between Traverse de Sioux and Henderson. It is well to state here that the stages carried the mails, and always stopped at the post towns long enough to deliver the incoming and receive the outgoing mails, which afforded time for a bit of gossip, a drink, and a stretch of the legs. There were two post offices in Lasseur, in Upper Town and Lower Town, about a mile and a half apart. As soon as the stage stopped at Upper Town, the deputy sheriff handed me the handbill through the window announcing the theft and describing the thieves. I read it right in the face of my via V, and after congratulating myself that I had no responsibility for the lost money, I remarked to the sheriff, Of course you don't expect to find these fellows on the main thoroughfare. They are probably now going down the Missouri in a canoe. Nothing more occurred until we arrived at the lower town post office, where we again stopped to change the mails. Let me here state that the man in front of me was the Frenchman, and the man on the, on the front seat with the driver was the German, the deserting thieves. The Frenchman was a slight build, but the German was a powerful fellow, and had in his hand a double-barreled shotgun. I, of course, had no idea of their identity at this time, but they, and especially the Frenchman, knew me perfectly well, having frequently seen me about the garrison. 
They had construed my anxiety to go on the stage into the belief that I knew them and was after them, and had made my remark to the sheriff as a mere blind connected with some other scheme for their capture. It must have been a trying ordeal for the man in front of me, who was evidently watching my every move and feeling the weight of his guilt, supposed I knew all about it. While we were waiting for the change of mail at Lower Lesseur, the deputy sheriff asked me to get out of the stage and said to me, Major, I was called Major in those days, had we not better take another look at those fellows in the stage? They are going out of the country when everybody is coming in. It looks to me suspicious. I agreed with him and took another look. I at once discovered that they were both dressed from head to foot in the new slop shop clothes, indicating the necessity for an entire change of costume, and I concluded from this clue there was sufficient grounds to suspect them. So, the deputy sheriff said, You hold the stage ten or fifteen minutes and I'll go to Henderson and take out a warrant and arrest them on the arrival of the stage, so that, if we are mistaken, no particular harm will be done. He started on. I got my handbag out of the boot and buckled on my six-shooter, all of which was seen by the thieves who must have fully understood the program. At least, such must have been the case with the Frenchman, as subsequent events led me to doubt whether the German was a participant in the theft or more than a mere deserter. I had a sense of uneasiness about the double-barreled shotgun carried by the German, but I thought I could handle the other man. We started, and much to my relief, when we reached the ferry over the river, the German fired one barrel of his gun at a pigeon and snapped several caps on the other which refused to go off. As we approached Henderson, quite a crowd had gathered at the hotel to see the arrest, and just as the sage swung up the sidewalk, the Frenchman took out of his pocket a small penknife, the largest blade of which could not have been over four inches long. He opened it so quietly that it did not excite my apprehensions in the least. Although I had my right hand on my six-shooter intending to draw and cover him the moment the stage stopped, he made a desperate lunge at his breast with the knife, and handing me a carpet bag which lay on his lap, he said, the money is all in the bag, sir. Just as if we had been talking the whole matter over, I, fearing that he might strike at me with the knife, drew my revolver and struck him sharply over the knuckles, making the knife fly out of the window, and, seizing him by the throat with my left hand, I covered him with my pistol. The stage stopped, retaining my hold on him, and still covering him with my pistol, we got out of the stage on the sidewalk. He wavered for a second and fell dead. He had put the knife an inch into his heart. I found in a belt on his body and in the bag $5,320 in gold, which I deposited in the United States Land Office at Henderson, subject to the order of Major Cullen, who got it all in good time. The Frenchman had in his pocket some letters from a lady in Strasbourg, written in French, conveying some very tender sentiments. I never thought he was a bad man, but had yielded, as many do, to strong temptation, and had decided to die rather than be captured. 
It was not more than 20 minutes before we were on our way to St. Paul. As no evidence connected the German with the theft, he was sent back simply as a deserter. A curious question arose as to the reward. Major Cullen insisted on giving it to me. I knew very well that, had it not been for the superior detective's sagacity of the deputy, the thieves would never have been caught. So I refused it, as I would have done under any circumstances. Then the sheriff claimed it, and finally the major left its disposition to me, and I divided it between the sheriff and the deputy, partly because I thought it was just, and partly to keep the peace in the sheriff's office family. Where the extra $320 came from, or where it went, I never knew nor cared. End of Section 7 Recording by Crystal Gaddis